in the spring of 2014, an advertisement started popping up on environmentalist websites, military forums, and Facebook pages popular with doctors who volunteer overseas. It was one of those side banners, and it asked a provocative question. Do you want to start a new life? The ad linked to an application for a reality TV show called Eden, created by the BBC. 23 people were selected to live together on the westernmost tip of the United Kingdom, off the grid and completely isolated for a year. How do you think that went? At the outset, it went pretty good. The group developed specialized roles and instituted a rota system for jobs around the camp. But the better angels of their nature soon disappeared in the bogs of the Scottish Highlands. Two rival factions emerged. Those who felt they were doing a disproportionate share of the work and those who felt resented and dominated as a result. Eden descended into chaos. A few of the 23 began secretly paying local residents to drop off chocolate and cigarettes. <laughs> it gets better. A group of five men banded together and called themselves the Valley Boys. They lived in a fort, experimented with an all-meat diet, and hatched a plan to slaughter all the animals in the camp. It would be funny if it wasn't true. <laughs> Filming started in April 2015, and there was a mutiny in the fall, and the group demanded a 25-kilogram delivery of sugar and fast-acting yeast every month. Why, you ask? To make alcohol. A production assistant who's quoted, there's a great New Yorker article that details this story. It's worth reading. And the production assistant quoting the article said, this is a quote, in the autumn, they did nothing but drink, really. <laughs> By the end, people were sleeping with hammers under their pillows. And the creators had to rebrand when the show went to air. It was now called Eden, colon, Paradise Lost. <laughs> Where did the myth of the wilderness as a kind of second Eden come from? Rousseau? Thoreau? Eddie Vedder? Who cares? The notion of, of going back to nature to wash away your sins has deep roots. But the Bible's picture of the wilderness is, shall we say, more ambivalent. Yes, it's a place of God's provision and presence. It's also a place of testing and temptation, and most significantly, the wilderness is a place of failure. It's where the pure canvas of human nature is revealed to be a painting by Jackson Pollock. But not in Luke chapter 4. Jesus enters the wilderness, is tested by the devil in some comprehensive sense, but emerges unscathed. No, he emerges stronger. I want to say three things about this gospel lesson for the first Sunday of Lent. 
a word about the temptations we face, the victory we share, and the opportune time. The temptations we face. There are many threads of the biblical story woven into this text. Satan's temptation of Job, Noah's 40-day flood, Elijah's 40-day fast, Ezekiel's 40-day burden for the sins of Judah, and of course, Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert. There's a lot of places you can go here, but I want to focus on one parallel this morning, and that is the parallels between Jesus and Adam and Eve. The Lord resisted where they fell. Adam and Eve's story takes place in Genesis chapter 3. Some of you might know that. Do you remember their temptation? I have this theory that much of how we understand and approach the Christian faith reflects how we answer the question of what went wrong in the garden. And the way I read the story, paradise was lost, not because of ignorance, our anger, our irresponsibility, our gluttony, our laziness. What went wrong was that Adam and Eve were enticed by the desire to be like God. They were disappointed with their place in creation. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil. They craved that which belongs to God alone. And I want to say that is the preennial human temptation to refuse creaturehood to climb Jacob's ladder and pursue our God projects, to reject, uh, the Pope John Paul II has this great phrase, the, the hermeneutics of gift. It's living in the simplicity and the awareness that God has created us, that creation is good, and God will give us all that we need to flourish. It's rejecting that. Jesus is different than Adam and Eve, more than the image of God, he is God from God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. But the whole mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus' divine nature, his godness, did not in any way um, lessen or subvert, the, the GRE word would be vitiate, his human nature. He was fully God, but he was also fully human. And it was Jesus's, this isn't like technically right, but it was Jesus's human nature, as it were, that was on trial in the wilderness. And therefore, Jesus's temptation was not altogether different than the temptations of Adam and Eve or the temptations we face. Let me quickly go through each of them. First, Jesus wasn't eating anything. He was hungry, fully human. And the devil tempts him, like so often with us, with common sense. Turn that rock over there into a freshly baked loaf of sourdough bread. You would have the power to do so if you are the Son of God. Why starve? Second, Jesus sees all the kingdoms of the world, and the devil says, all this could be yours. You can have dominion 
right now. Imagine all the good you could do with this power, all the suffering you could alleviate. Why be ordinary? Why be vulnerable? Why be subject to the whims of others? I think of the Lord of the Rings and the magnetic draw of the ring of power. Jesus is being offered authority and glory. And finally, the devil leads Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And when you set this final temptation against the backdrop of Jesus' life and mission, which is going to culminate with his death in that very city, Jesus is facing the prospect of his sure and certain death. And the devil says, why not claim your prerogative as God's son and be shielded from such such an ignoble, godless end? Jesus is empty. He could be filled. Jesus is subject to the power of others. He could have authority and glory. Jesus is mortal. He could be indestructible. Miracles. He's being tempted. This is important. <laughs> He's being tempted to deny his identity as a kind of second Adam, as a human being who fully accepts and commits himself unreservedly to his vocation. The uh, 4th century bishop of Milan, Ambrose, he puts this contrast like this. As Adam is cast out of paradise into the wilderness, so Christ, the new Adam, goes into the wilderness on our behalf to come forth from that temptation and lead us back to paradise. It's a lot of theology. What about the temptations that we face? Are they similar? Yes and no. Well, at least in my case, they're a lot less grandiose. And if you're anything like me, the temptations feel a bit different. I mean, maybe you are being pulled upward. Maybe you are tempted to kind of seize glory on your own terms. But maybe your temptation is to, is to curve in upon yourself, to be so self-involved that you fail to see, much less care about the needs of others. Or maybe you just, frankly, cope with the difficulties of life in unhealthy, destructive ways. But I want to say that at root of so many of our problems is this frustrated desire for control for glory, for God-likeness. And that frustration is what makes the gravity well of self-interest so impossible to escape. God created us to so trust and receive what we need from him that we can, with open hands, love and seek the good of others. God created us to be free but everywhere we are in chains, to quote Rousseau. We, we strive, that was funny for about two people. We, uh, we strive upwards or we curve in upon ourselves. 
fracturing into rival camps. We, we fail in our vocation as human beings. Victory we share. Jesus was tempted, but Jesus resisted. And the text tells us how, and it's relatively simple. Jesus used the word of God. And particularly, Jesus drew from the story of Israel's wandering in the wilderness that's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. All three of those citations in Luke are from, I think it's Deuteronomy 6 and 8, where Israel failed to remember God's commands and God's promises. Jesus drew them out like a, seal, like a shield and like a sword, and he beat the devil back. It's natural, therefore, to think of Jesus here as our example. We read his story of overcoming as a description for how to go and do likewise. Memorize these passages. Try this reading plan. I've preached like 12 versions of that sermon, so I'm not, I'm not being a hater. But there's problems with that kind of one-for-one. One. The Bible is not a magic wand. And the idea that if you just memorize passages from it, you'll endure every temptation is simply dishonest. And the, the older and hopefully a little bit more self-aware that I become, the more I shudder at my ability to elude temptation. And the more I realize how complex and multifaceted temptation can be. Because it's one thing, this isn't always easy, but it's one thing to refuse that which is clearly wrong, but it's often not so simple. Like in Jesus' temptation, there's no mention of obvious sins like adultery or murder. Instead, there's a twisting of that which is true. There's nothing wrong with eating bread. Jesus was going to receive authority and dominion and splendor. And Jesus would be rescued from death. God would command his angels concerning him. Their hands would bear Jesus up to the Father. As if to say, the devil was not lying. He was telling half-truths. I think it works a similar way in our lives. Temptation can be so complex there's a great line in a, a sermon, actually, by the English poet John Donne. He says, poor, intricated soul, riddling, perplexed, labyrinthical soul. We're complicated, full of contradictions and intricacies. Our soul is this labyrinth. It can be very difficult to recognize temptation for what it is. Like, for example, how can you tell the difference between... Uh, godly intentions and selfish ambition? Or how do you tell the difference between laziness and sloth or the legitimate need for rest or righteous anger versus self-righteousness? We even learn here, right, that quoting the Bible does not guarantee that we are in sync with what God wants us to do. I, uh, I wasted a lot of sermon prep time this week reading about the Great Wall of China this is not a fresh take, but what a staggering achievement. <laughs> Did you know the wall stretches across 4,000 miles of northern China? Imagine how safe people would have felt behind it and how impenetrable the wall would look to China's enemies. But of course, the wall was breached several times. 
Was it broken down? No. Was it circumvented? No. They simply bribed the gatekeepers. It's important to build lines of defense. It's important to be vigilant and disciplined in the spiritual life. And it's important to read scripture. There is indeed temptation, which can be resisted by the word of God and by the renewal of our minds. But as long as the battle is ours, as long as we're the gatekeepers, we're just one bribe away from being conquered. And so what I want to stress, therefore, in this second point is not technique, it's relationship. When you experience temptation, or when you recognize that you failed, you can be encouraged by the fact that you are known and you are loved by one who overcame. Jesus is your savior precisely because he did that which you could never do on even your best, holiest days. And Jesus is here for you today to forgive you of your sins and fight the battles you cannot win. Martin Luther was once asked how he overcame temptation. He said that when the devil comes knocking at the door of his heart and asks who lives here, it's the Lord Jesus who goes to the door. He says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. When Christ fills our lives, he says, the devil has no entrance. Jesus makes his home in you, regardless of your temptation, and he secures your victory. Final point, opportune time. We're looking at Luke's gospel. Matthew and Mark also tell the story of Jesus' testing in the wilderness. And Matthew and Luke, are, are, their stories are very similar. But there's one, well, I guess there's two, but relevant for this point. There's one difference to stress. And that is, uh, in our reading, Luke concludes his story with a, a verse that's unique to his gospel. It's verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Opportune time. It's an ominous conclusion. <laughs> and it provides a link between the beginning and end of Lent, between this Sunday and Good Friday. For, because the opportune time that the devil returned was the day of Jesus' passion. Augustine, he said that here the devil departs like an insidious serpent, only to return as a roaring lion. On the cross, our Lord was not tested with words. He was attacked with actions. He wasn't merely hungry. He was poured out like water, his bones out of joint, his heart melted like wax within his chest. He wasn't merely weak or ordinary. He was ridiculed and scorned. He was subjected to cruelty and violence. He didn't merely reckon with his mortality. His breathing stopped. His heart ceased to beat, and his eyes closed for seemingly the last time. What's, what's new and what's helpful about Christianity isn't that one person resisted sin. 
That's incredible. And that establishes Jesus' unique identity as the second Adam. And that brightly evokes praise and wonder, but that, that doesn't touch us in the war zone that is life on earth. What's new and what's helpful about Christianity is God becoming sin. God absorbing the poison and bitterness that spewed out and that we spew out. At an opportune time, Jesus died the death of sin, and Jesus rose to a totally new kind of life, forever free from the devil's power. And what that means is that anyone and everyone who comes to him by faith passes through the wilderness. Everyone who follows in that train of victory makes their way back to Eden. And there, there are no hammers under pillows because the swords have been beaten into plowshares. There are no valley boys slaughtering the animals. The wolf lies down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, and it's a little child who leads them. Well, something about the temptations we face, the victory we share, and the opportune time. Let's pray. Lord, we said earlier today that you know the weaknesses of each of us. Lord, I believe that's true. I believe that you do know, Lord, the areas where we fall short. You know, Lord, where we're subject to temptation where we easily fall. And so I pray that the truth of that collect would come alive in our hearts, that we would find in you a God who is mighty to save. I pray that for this morning, we would leave here encouraged and empowered and free, trusting that you will give us all that we need, that you will secure our victory and that you fight for us as we make our home in this new Eden. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.